So this morning I thought I would talk about contentment, at least biblical contentment. Um, the projector is freaking out. So what does contentment mean to you? Does it mean a nice car, a beautiful family, success for loved ones, consistent promotions in your career, staying healthy, checking everything off your bucket list? Is there a driving force inside of you that keeps pushing you towards what you think will bring you into a state of nirvana only to find out that you're stuck and suffering from the what's next syndrome? It is truly amazing to me that we can live in one of the most prosperous times for the general public in history. We have so much food that we throw it out. We get so annoyed with our excess clothing and possessions that we put them in piles and drop them off at a store which makes so much money off our excess that they can pay their CEO over half a million dollars a year. Not saying that's a good practice, but it definitely didn't bankrupt the company. And in America, even if you make half the national median income, it is safe to say that you're still in the top 5% of earners globally. And yet we can sometimes still find ourselves pouting or even depressed because we simply just don't have enough. In 1 Timothy 6.6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Is this the same definition of contentment which we would apply to the word? It appears it is all too easy to jumble the biblical definition around a bit and end up backwards. Great gain with godliness is contentment. Or even go so far as to leave out the godliness portion of Paul's statement and just focus on the great gain. If we continue on with this section of scripture, Paul goes on to say, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we will be uh, content with these. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I love it when I find out that a tradition is based on something that isn't even true. There are many branches with sayings, memes, etc. hanging from them, which we sometimes pick fruit from and eat it and accept it as fact, when that fruit is a complete misrepresentation of the roots of the tree. Verse 10, there is a whopper of the sort. We've all heard the saying, money is the root of all evil. But that is unscriptural and a hindrance, and it's bound to cause some digestive issues. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, is what the Bible says. And that tastes quite a bit different. This is not a sermon about condemning abundance. Second Corinthians 9.8 says, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As with most, most everything, it all comes down to what we do with what we have and where our allegiance truly lies. Toward the end of this chapter in 1 Timothy, Paul covers this truth. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. A lot of people really have no idea that that's even in the Bible. We're, we're, we're supposed to enjoy what God blesses us with. It's amazing. Uh, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. 
Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I'm really glad Paul threw that in there with the understanding that everything is relative, still, based on the statistics, we are a very rich people. So, First Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy, likely in the mid-60s AD, while Timothy was working in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus had an issue with false teachers. One of the issues that Paul took with these false teachers was that their greed was with their greed, as their ministries were motivated by it. These are the people that fulfill Proverbs 28-25. The greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. Paul saw fit to expound on the subject quite a bit in this letter to Timothy, with encouragement to focus on the true riches of eternity through true godliness and good works. In chapter 4, verse 8, Paul sizes up training, which is only focused on the here and now, stating, Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. In both of these sections of his letter, there's a theme of, you can't take it with you. But at the same time, Paul's words paint a picture of blessings that are both for now and then, the present life, and the life to come. In fact, Scripture always paints the picture of God taking care of His beloved, both in the present life as well into the life to come. Not only the beloved in this present age either, but also all of creation, even in its fallen state. In Matthew 10, Jesus calls the twelve disciples to Him and dishes out authority. There is more than one account of Jesus sending out His followers, But in this instance, Jesus instructs his followers as follows. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. I tell you, truly, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you will say or how you will say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So don't be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. 
What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And that is one of my favorite verses. I love that. Even though this would be a short missions trip for the disciples, Jesus called on them to rely solely on the provision and moving of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say what I just said. I already read that part. I'm sorry. While some of these words of Jesus are encouraging and exciting, some are cause for pause. The idea of contentment and even joy in persecution is something that tends to be foreign to the Western church and its roots. So I guess the question that I keep coming back to for myself is what am I willing to lose? Is there anything that I stop at and say, not this God? Am I willing to let go of dreams? Am I willing to let go of the cash in my pocket? Am I willing to live where God wants me to live instead of where I want to live? What about my time? As if it is really my time to begin with. What about my food? A couple of months ago, I was pretty sick. Aside from watching movies and sleeping, I took advantage of the downtime to do some extra praying. I did a lot of repenting that, at the, during that time as I asked God to continue the works in me for which he had started. One of the things that came up was the issue of contentment. For a long time, I had been back and forth with God on the subject. I had tried to do everything he asked of me. I lived where he wanted me to live. I took the jobs he wanted me to take. All the while, I would struggle off and on internally. I was constantly waiting for some next thing, for a, a consummation of sorts. After doing everything his way, maybe he would finally let me do some things my way. I would get excited at the prospect only to be let down when, over and over again, it didn't happen. At one point in my life, he even spoke to my heart and said verbatim, You don't have to be disappointed. And I hate to admit this, but I kind of chuckled in disbelief. I just kind of laughed. To be clear, I'm not referring to living on a yacht or being king of the world. My drug of choice is freedom. Freedom to come and go. Freedom to sleep in or work like a dog. Freedom to make choices. The freedom to have wild success in my passions, including ministry. Over and over again, I would come to a head over this, that, and the other thing. Almost every time, choosing God's will over my own. And every time I chose God's will over my own, I could feel myself inch closer to him. It would feel great for a while. Then I would start to wonder, where's the breakthrough? Where's the deliverance? 
Where are the hordes of people coming to salvation because of your work through me? After my nearly 103 degree fevers subsided and I started to gain my strength back, I noticed something odd had happened. I've experienced this type of thing before from the Lord on several occasions, almost always turning out to be a life-changing event, but never before on the subject of contentment. For days, I felt absolutely amazing. It wasn't the usual contrasted pleasure of physically feeling better after being sick, as I was still under the weather. Something changed internally. The change was so stark that I honestly thought, for just a fleeting second, I hate to admit this too, (laughs) perhaps while I was sick, I had developed a brain tumor that was making me dumber and therefore I was happier. Which I I hate to even come close to joking about that kind of thing, but it truly crossed my mind for a second because the, 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 the contrast was so stark. It was night and day. Something like a switch flipped inside of me. It was amazing. I honestly believe that God had changed something inside of me. I don't know if it was a culmination of years of imperfect obedience. Maybe it was a manifestation of trusting God for years. Maybe I was finally just willing to believe. Whatever it was, I asked God to let me keep it for the rest of my life. I woke up happy. I went to work happy. I came home happy. It really was a piece of heaven, I think. And it tasted so very sweet. And I'm no longer chuckling in disbelief. So this is a promise for all of us. The promise of true contentment. This is still not perfected in me, but I'm night and day better than I ever was before. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts you. Isaiah 26.3 comes to mind, as peace and contentment go hand in hand. If you will recall, I talked about this verse and how God showed me that there is a double promise of peace in the verse, which was doubly confirmed to me. If we truly keep our minds on God, on his will, on his way of doing things, on his heart for us and for the church, and we trust him in all things, there is a double portion of peace for us. It is the kind of peace spoken of In Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to speak on contentment, stating, For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
Paul's secret to contentment sounds a lot like simply trusting the Lord. Trusting in Him for every last thing. Trusting Him when He tells us to live in a certain place. Trusting Him the way that a small child trusts a parent. Notice I said small child because when they get bigger it's, it's a little different. Trusting Him when He tells us something isn't good for us even though it looks amazing, and it won't stop tugging on our curiosities. Trusting Him when our heart yearns for sustenance that is far different than what He is setting on the table. A trusting in His foreknowledge and a total lack of self. A giving up of our right to self so that God may flourish in every good work for which He has placed us here. That is contentment, and that is true freedom. So this one was a little more short than I expected, but as we wrap up this morning, I would like to share a few more versions to help drive the point home, or verses rather. Hebrews is such a wonderful book. In chapter 13, the writer sheds a little more light on the subject of contentment. When I have found myself to be sitting in the dark, stewing on the thises, the thats, and the other things, Often, this light is the one that drives the darkness away. Verse 5 starts, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Then the writer goes on to say in verse 12, So Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? There's the bird thing again. I love it. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This place in, our, in its current state is not our home. And our sojournment is fleeting. Quickly. So, we are given a choice. Are we going to choose to live in the realm of the poor widow in Mark 12 that chose to give everything she had, even though it was all she had to live on. As a side note, I personally know people that have done this very thing, and it completely changed their lives. The promises in Malachi 3, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. It's the only place he says this. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. These are just as valid today as they were thousands of years ago. Are we going to be like the rich young ruler in Mark 10 that pouts and mourns over the loss of the temporal when he could have traded it all up, not only for peace in the here and now, but also eternally? Or are we even going to be like, and go so far as, the rich man in Luke 16, that reveled in the luxurious and neglected what God would have him do with it, ignoring the man that was literally sitting in agony just outside of his door, while making the things of this life his God, and therefore ending up completely cut off from the one true God. We're not above these things, so we have to be careful. So I would like to close with Luke 12, in the very words of Jesus himself. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I will tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, and they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. We worship you. Thank you for being our provider. Thank you for granting us the freedom, the true freedom of being free from everything this world has to offer and being free to be children of you and citizens of your kingdom. Lord, we just pray, Lord God, for that peace, that contentment, that love, Lord God, that only comes from you. Lord, I speak this over everyone here today, Lord God, for true contentment, true peace in every good thing that we can move forward in every good thing that you have for us to do. That we can have that internal peace, Lord God, that just burns like a precious, glowing thing. We're not even sure what it is, but we know it's from you. And we know it's because of you, and we know that it's for you, and that we can give it back to you with all the interest that we can 
use all that you've blessed us with, our time, finances, our ideas, our thoughts, our talents, our everything, to build up treasures in heaven, to bring you glory, to please you. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunities that you've given us in our lives to put you first and to allow those leaps of faith to change us, to make us better people, better stewards, better children of God. So we love you, Lord. And we just ask that you would continue every good work in us that you're doing and that we would do it all for your name's sake and for your glory. We love you and we cherish you and we worship you, Lord God. Please help us to keep in the forefront of our minds the fact that everything is yours. That we are to be good managers of all that you bless us with. Top to bottom, left to right, front to back. And help us, Lord God, to lay all these things at your feet, Lord God, so that you can exponentially increase every good thing in not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. And we love you, Lord. Help us to put you first in everything. In the name of Jesus. Amen.